KPBS On Demand is supported by the National Conflict Resolution Center. Topics like political polarization and hybrid work policies can create workplace conflict. NCRC can help workplace leaders navigate divisive issues with the culture, communication, and conflict certificate. More at ncrconline.com. A conversation about one of San Diego's most pressing problems. All homelessness means is you've lost housing. We need to talk about our challenges as a society. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. We're presenting the latest KPBS Community Conversation featuring experts, advocates, and people with lived experience of homelessness. It's really changing the stereotypes and the stigmas related to our brothers and sisters under this banner of homelessness because we're just folks. And sometimes we take the humanity out of the conversation. Join us for an hour-long special conversation, Unsheltered, Solving Homelessness in San Diego. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com. As San Diego continues to grapple with how to connect its unsheltered population with services and housing, complex questions have to be asked. What role should conservatorship laws play in helping the hardest-to-reach homeless individuals? What are the best strategies for reducing the number of people living on the street? How can you find permanent housing for so many people in one of the least affordable places in the country? KPBS posed these questions and more to a number of experts on the issue last week in a community forum called Unsheltered, Solving Homelessness in San Diego. KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen and guests discuss the state of homelessness in the region and what has to be done to make a difference for so many in need. Joining the panel discussion are Lisa Jones, Executive Vice President of the San Diego Housing Commission, which oversees homeless services and affordable housing for the city of San Diego. Bob McElroy, founder and CEO of Alpha Project, a nonprofit service provider that operates both temporary shelters and affordable and permanent supportive housing. Tamara Kohler, CEO of the Regional Task Force on the Homeless, a countywide agency that distributes state and federal resources and collects data on homelessness. And Jesse Gray, a veteran who experienced homelessness and has since become an advocate for the unsheltered. Andrew Bowen started the conversation by playing a now viral video clip of city workers discarding bicycles from a homeless encampment into the back of a trash truck. Formerly homeless veteran Jesse Gray shared his reaction to the video. What I see there is maybe there was one or two bicycles outside of that frame that were inoperable, and they kind of use that as blanket justification for depriving these people of things they may have needed to continue out there. That's uh, a little frustrating to see that. Tamara, we know that San Diego has increasingly relied on police and the enforcement of encroachment laws and abandoned property laws to manage homelessness. They say, of course, they're responding to illegal activity or maybe complaints about encampments. But we also know that enforcement of crimes related to homelessness can trap people in this death spiral of increasing fines. And enforcement also isn't cheap 
officers are often earning overtime while they're doing this work. So what role, if any, should police play in our response to homelessness? I think, you know, our police are there to protect the citizens and, and I think enforcement's a part of their jobs. We really have a strong process and practice around addressing our unsheltered population that really should lead with our outreach teams and strong engagement, uh, really having our, our officers respond when there is a call of need or a crime that is happening is the best use of law enforcement in a community. We've worked really hard to have outreach at the front lines of this work. And there's actually some strong practices and policies around engagement, around when an encampment may need to be moved for hygiene or cleaning or even abatement to protect personal property. So I think, you know, we we have some strong practices in this community that we should uh, adhere to and follow uh, that are understood by individuals experiencing homelessness as well. Bob, you also experienced homelessness at, at a time in your life. I'm wondering if you have any thoughts uh, as you watch that video. Well, I was bummed out because I recognized some of those bikes. You know, we hand out bikes all the time. We have donors that come down to the shelters. And, you know, that's that's one of the, the only modes of transportation that a lot of our folks have. They go back and forth to work on those things. On the other hand, there's other folks that have stolen property. So, you know, enforcement is a dicey issue. You know, I'm pro-enforcement in certain instances. You know, certain cases, we're doing 50 Narcan interventions every two weeks. You know, we jump in, my outreach chiefs jump out and somebody's blue in a tent. We pull them out and shove Narcan up and bring them back to life. I see little kids walking to Perkins and Monarch uh, School walking in the street because the, the sidewalks are blocked by tents. So the reality is there's got to be a place for everybody to go. You can't enforce encroachment and other things unless there's a, a an opportunity for somebody to have an alternative to being homeless. And until we get to that point, you know, it's going to continue to be the way it is. Shelters like the ones that you operate provide people a place to not just to sleep, but also to store their belongings. And the city also has a storage facility to keep their stuff. Are these resources simply inadequate? Is that why we're seeing so much of this property sometimes abandoned on, on the streets or sidewalks? Or are there other barriers to accessing them? In my 35 years, I've, I'm waiting for these numbers to come out from the point in time count, but I've never seen the concentration of folks in my 35 years that I see today. I mean, there's folks everywhere. So it's telling me that we certainly need more of the first, you know, the first step in recovery are the shelters. And then through those shelters, we distill those people into, you know, the housing and jobs and other uh, other forms of, of treatment and service. But I drive the streets every day and I talk to people every day and I'm, you know, for the first time in my 35 years, I, I, I don't know what to do. We just don't have a, a place for everybody. And, and then we have to have people that are also willing to take the services that we offer, you know, and that's that's the biggest challenge right now. You'll see these outreach teams that go out and make two or 300 contacts and 15 people take them up on the offer for help. So we really, I think all of the stakeholders in this need to sit around a table and instead of just talking and having endless meetings to actually come up with a comprehensive plan. We are working with some of the housing commission for sure. And, and how do we make a big dent in this now and not five years from now? Lisa, I'm going to turn to you. Um, I think Tamara alluded to the city cannot issue a citation for somebody who is maybe um, blocking a sidewalk or, or hasn't complied with an order to uh, move their property only if there is a shelter bed available for them. On average, what is the average vacancy rate of a, a homeless shelter on a given night? And why might a person refuse uh, or decline you know, uh, access to that shelter? 
So um, it can vary based on uh, the number of intakes that are done on a given day. The Housing Commission runs coordinated intake for every city funded shelter across the system and actually a few shelters that participate that, that the city doesn't fund. As an example, there were uh, 71 beds available for single adults this morning. As of this morning, we actually collect that data on a daily basis so that we also collect data on what type of shelter bed is available because people have different needs, Andrew. So that sometime is the, sometimes is the challenge. We may have shelter beds available, but we don't have a shelter bed available that meets someone's specific needs, which is why continued investment that you're seeing with the new women's shelter that came online recently with the new shelter that is coming online in, in the coming months is, is trying to create I would call it a continuum of interventions because for the first thing, people have different needs. They also have different preferences, right? So we need to understand that choice in those options is really critical. Someone who may not engage in this type of environment might engage in another and, and really looking at building out a continuum of interventions to meet unique needs is going to help people make that choice. San Diego Mayor Todd Gloria just released his proposed budget. Uh, Lisa, can you give us an overview uh, of what you're aware of, of some of the homeless funding uh, that's in that budget? So there's deep investment, continued in crisis response, harm reduction, the partnership between the city and the county over the past couple of years with the political will that we've seen has really been something. It's allowed us as sort of practitioners of the work, working with county behavioral health to start looking at different models to better meet people's needs. The harm reduction shelter that you saw come up last December, which is continuing funding obviously into this next fiscal year. The new structure that Chair of the County Board of Supervisors, Nathan Fletcher mentioned at his State of the County address. I can't speak too much to that, but we're looking up to another 150 beds there. The Women's Shelter, which is a great new project because it meets folks' needs with, with folks with higher needs, right? With mobility issues, higher mental health or behavioral health issues. So really trying to plug the gaps in some of the existing system. So those crisis intervention, harm reduction. Safe Haven is another project we're working on with the county through city and county funding really to do a better job of meeting some of those more, those greatest challenges. You know, speaking to what we've heard some folks share about the concerns around fentanyl and, and substance abuse, how do we find, just develop programs that better meet those people, those people's needs? Jesse, can you share some experiences or memories of a uh, time that you might have spent in a homeless shelter or uh, sleeping on the street? What what was that experience like and, and how did it affect you? The majority of my experience was spent sleeping in my car and at hotels when I could still afford it. When funds got really tight, I just had the money for the gas in the vehicle and then I was showering at different gyms around the city. I never went to a shelter and it's kind of for the reason why that Lisa had mentioned it just that situation was not going to help me get back on my feet like I wanted to. The density was the density was a mess and the staffing, they looked like they were stressed and not knowledgeable. So that wasn't something I wanted to turn to. So it was mostly in my vehicle. And it's a, it was a traumatic time, but being a veteran, I was leaning on some of that resourcefulness at the time. And then also, um, Lisa, you were speaking about bridging the gaps. What I found even here when I was looking for houses is finding that information. Uh, there's tons of resources in the city, and I'm really thankful for that here, especially compared to San Francisco, but finding where they were was a maze. So having it is one thing, but getting that information out is another. 
what kind of shelter would have been a place that you could have seen yourself actually turning to or feeling safe and comfortable going to, uh, you know, on those nights when maybe you didn't feel like you could sleep in your car or you, for whatever reason, you couldn't do that. What type of shelter would have met your needs? The quality of living was just not there. Um, I was in and out of jail briefly back in 2018. And to me, the shelters looked no different. The quality was dehumanizing. So just something that makes the people feel like they're still human. Bob, can you uh, kind of give us a look inside some of the emergency shelters uh, that you operate? What do, what do they look like? How many people are there? Uh, you know, who are the people who are staying there? What kind of services do you offer? And I hate, you know, just like the word homelessness, you know, and all the negative uh, visuals that brings to mind, bag lady, dump diver, panhandler, you know, like we, we dehumanize people with labels and the shelters have been the same way. We don't call our shelters shelters, we call them communities. In fact, we've had many, many people, and Lisa can attest to this, that have been matched to housing, they can actually move out and we have a place for them to go, that don't want to go because all their friends are at the shelter. We try and make it as accommodating as possible. Yeah, it's tough. You know, we are 28 inches uh, you know, away from each other, and it's amazing to me. It's really a testament to the folks that we have living in our facilities that they can live in a communal setting like that. But we make it as comfortable as possible, as accommodating and, and humane as possible. When we tell people when they come through the gate, you're no longer homeless, your mom, dad, brother, sister, grandma, grandpa. Really, we're run by the by the folks that live there. They have a vested interest in making that, making our facilities as accommodating and as safe and pleasant as possible. So I I invite people to come down and actually see what we do. I can't speak to other facilities, but, um, you know, we have 20 folks a day that go out in the community on wheels of change and clean up. It started in just in East Village, but they, they, they go for four hours and they have a they have a two-hour commitment of uh, being a social worker and mentoring their brothers and sisters that they've camped with for 20-plus years. They brought many people who were shelter resistance in the facilities. And they just, it changed, we're trying to change the negative perception of what homeless folks are. They're just like everybody else. And so our, really our philosophy is bringing the humanity back to folks. There's no humanity living on the street, believe me. People are pushed from one corner to the other, and we know all the the issues uh, that are out there. And I'm not speaking to the 15% or more of the population that are severely mentally ill, that can't access any facility simply because of their mental health challenges. I mean, that's just despicable. I felt like John the Baptist, the one crying in the wilderness for 35 years to, to, to do something for these folks because they're there for no, no choice of their own. And, uh, and I'm hearing now, maybe from the state, that we are going to start addressing that issue. Lisa, I'm thinking back to 2017 when the hepatitis A outbreak tore through the homeless community in San Diego. And that was when the then mayor, Kevin Faulkner, created the bridge shelters, which the Housing Commission oversees. And they were meant to be a temporary place for people to stay while they waited for permanent housing. What I was thinking at the time that this was being announced is, you know, we don't have hundreds or thousands of vacant affordable housing units that all of our, our unsheltered population is, you know, all they need is to be connected with the services. They actually mm -hmm. don't have that housing because it doesn't exist. What's the share of people who exit those shelters, the bridge shelters, for permanent housing nowadays? And what have you learned over the, the several years that those have been in operation? 
I, I remember that time well. I actually started working for the Housing Commission in late October 2017. And I remember in spring of 2018, I was trying to, if you go back and look at city council recordings, trying to explain that the premise of assuming everybody's going to exit to permanent housing was a little lacking, right? And we needed to really think about what that means. And we have really gone towards a housing-focused case management that looks at any opportunity to exit to longer term or more permanent housing, because not everybody is going to exit with a housing subsidy. We do not have those types of resources in our community, even with the additional resources that have come because of the impact of the pandemic. We can't, as many people say, necessarily build our way out of this. And a lot of folks can action other options some folks actually need independent living care. Some folks can reunify fam with family. Some folks can end up in shared housing when they're going through job fairs and they have the ability to work, right? You want to align the housing resource with that person's individual needs. And they not everyone needs the same things and we don't have enough resources to go around. So what we don't wanna do is create an environment and, and, an, and an approach that we're just waiting for housing to happen. We have to have conversations between case managers, between people who are ready to move forward about what the variety of those interventions, those opportunities can be. So to talk about sort of positive exits, we look at positive exits when we see someone exiting to transitional housing, someone exiting to adult independent living care, nursing home, shared housing, family reunification, permanent supportive housing, which is that deep subsidy and ongoing case management and wraparound services, rapid rehousing, which is, you know, anywhere between six to 24 months of housing subsidy and services. I think that that's critically important to align the resource with that person's need and not set an expectation that everybody's going to exit with a permanent supportive housing voucher because they're not, right? So on average, anywhere between 25 to 30% exits to permanent supportive housing and long-term housing. Then, of course, we have a small percentage in our shelters where people sort of turn over again and again. People come in seven or eight times in a four-month period, getting some basic needs meant and exiting back out again. And, and oftentimes that is really paired with co-occurring conditions, whether it's substance use disorder, behavioral health issues. So having additional resources coming into our system and into our shelters that have those behavioral health assessments, those, those substance use resources connected to them, like the harm reduction shelter, is really important to figure out a way to better engage with those folks when they're in shelter, to try to create an environment that feels stabilized, that feels like there's opportunities so that we slow down that turnover and provide stabilization opportunities for folks. Coming up, the KPBS Community Forum on Solving Homelessness continues with a firsthand story of how one formerly unhoused veteran made his journey out of homelessness. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh. Our discussion about solutions for the unhoused living in the region continues in the KPBS Community Forum Unsheltered, Solving Homelessness in San Diego. KPBS reporter Andrew Bowen is joined in this discussion by Lisa Jones, Executive Vice President of the San Diego Housing Commission, Bob McElroy, Founder and CEO of Alpha Project, Tamara Kohler, CEO of the Regional Task Force on the Homeless, and Jesse Gray, a formerly homeless veteran. 
In this part of the discussion, Andrew asks panelist Jesse Gray how he was able to exit out of homelessness and how that experience led him to become an advocate for those in a similar situation. Going back to what I was saying about how I was applying for housing here in San Diego and exploring all the different resources, I also was reaching out to the different churches in the city and making notes of the issues I was running into when I was reaching out to different numbers. And there is an advocate that's a member of Uplift, Monica Ball, and she said that there was a group of people that addresses issues like that. She referred me to John Brady, the director of Lift Experience Advisors. What they are, as everybody on this line knows, is a group of people that have experienced homelessness and also provide input into the system at different processes. Uh, for instance, on Monday, we we're at City Hall when the budget was going being gone over. So I see that it's a catalyst for change and I want to help make a change and help people kind of avoid the issues and the hangups that I ran into. Can you give us a few? I mean, what are what are some of the biggest challenges that you faced? When I got here, I was living out of a hotel and looking for housing, but because of my accounts going to collections from San Francisco 2018, I wasn't going to get approved for housing without assistance. So the fact that I was a veteran helped in that process, but without a voucher or something of the equivalent, landlords weren't going to really work with me. And there was a gap with that, the communication between the people that have the houses and the programs that will provide support, is, there's a disconnect there. So, and then some of the shelters like VBSD in San Diego, the quality was not going to be conducive to help me continue moving forward. Wait lists, some of the wait lists that I heard were out to half a decade. So I was on a tight timeline to avoid being back out on the street. There's a 28 day legal limit in the hotel. And I still remember what it was like in San Francisco. And I know that I didn't want to repeat those issues. The stability was what, was what I was looking for. And that led me to lived experience advisors. Since then, I've joined a RUN, Residents United Network, and they just had a bill passed through housing this morning that would kind of consolidate a place for people to apply for assistance, not have to drive all over the city or try and coordinate with all these different schedules. Tamara, we know that permanent supportive housing is really the gold standard for ending chronic homelessness, especially for people with underlying issues like disabilities, addiction, uh, mental illness. How many permanent supportive housing units would we need to get everyone out of homelessness and onto the streets? Assuming you know money is no object, do we know how many of those units we need and how much that would cost? We did some modeling for the city uh, that's in the city plan, but I just want to level set that permanent supportive housing isn't for everyone experiencing homelessness. It's really for those chronic high needs that le need the level of supports. I think Jesse's experience is really a, a clear picture of not everyone experiencing homelessness looks like we think they do or having the challenges that we expect. There, it is a really complex and diverse population. So the permanent supportive housing is a little bit higher need and needs that level of support from behavioral health, tenant supports, and many of those need a level of housing vouchers as well. And I think, Lisa, what did we say? About 10,000 units or uh, that, that were needed long, long term. And I think that's a and right, not housing. just permanent supportive housing. So it looked at affordable housing, permanent supportive housing, rapid rehousing, prevention, diversion, and it ended up being uh, 
1.9 billion over dollar dollar investment over 10 years. Uh, this modeling was done though um, in 2019, right? A lot has changed since then. Our rental market itself has really seen big increases just over the last several months. And we know that as we get data from the point in time count that Tamara was just, you know, is coming out, the RTFH leads and some of the other homeless inventory count data that we will probably be doing a recalibration of those community action plan goals and um, and numbers. Bob, Alpha Project owns uh, affordable housing and operates affordable housing, those units that, you know, uh, can solve homelessness for someone who is simply poor or too poor to, to afford housing. Uh, what are the biggest barriers to getting more of that housing type constructed? Well, who wants to build uh, low-income housing in their neighborhood, number one? Number two, we don't have workforce housing for, you know, the working folks, you know, teachers and cops and stuff throughout mm -hmm. the county. And then it's cost, you know, it's gone. When we started, I think we built Alpha Square, we were about $250,000 per unit. I think it's over $400,000 a unit now for a 360-square-foot SRO-type type house and uh, or unit. And uh, I mean, it's just that the costs have gone through the roof. The only way we can do this is through tax credits and tax credits are competitive and, you know, throughout the state and throughout the country. And so from my experience, we're trying to do 273 units downtown right now. And it takes five to seven years, you know, from the time you start this process to build new units. You know, Father or Father Joe's, you know, just opened their uh, their their place. And and we all the providers, we, we house 28 people in 28 days or something like that. And. You know, we fill them up right away, and but we still got you know six thousand people waiting to get into units, and so, you know, housing first. You know, we we agree with it, we practice it, but um, it's it's just one piece of a huge puzzle, and uh, you know, and we've got to address all aspects of that we got. To, like I said, this I, I I hate to be the fly in the ointment all the time, but we're never going to build our way out of this, even under the best scenario. I think you. Uh, you asked Andrew if we, if you know, if we could do, if we could have all the money in the world and do it. It's a tough, tough challenge to do. Uh, and then also having communities that believe that, um, you know, a low-income housing unit is not going to be a blight on the landscape, and we're not going to bring crime to the neighborhood and all the stereotypes. You know, if you do anything, I've been burned in effigy, uh, you know, hundreds of times over the decades. You know, when we're trying to do, we want to do a facility in somebody's neighborhood. We've made a commitment to every neighborhood that we're in that's going to be better off because we're there. But that's not always the case providers. So it's, it's, it's really changing the stereotypes and the stigmas related to our brothers and sisters. You know, I hate labeling people under this banner of homelessness. I mean, like, they're just folks. And uh, sometimes we take the humanity out of the conversation. Lisa, you mentioned earlier the Community Action Plan on Homelessness approved in by the City of San Diego in 2019. It's a 10-year plan. And it laid out a number of goals with getting more shelter beds, more permanent housing. How are we doing with staying on top of those goals? Are we anywhere close to being on track? Well, in some areas, I think we're, we're actually doing really well when you compare to our goals. And in some areas, we're seeing challenges. Not surprising, right? But one of the things that we're looking at right now is waiting for the 2022 point in time count data to come out. So we actually have posted um, on our website and our dashboards that report out on how we're doing against the goals that were identified in the community action plan. Bob, you recently co-authored an op-ed in Voice of San Diego that says the city needs to increase funding for service providers so that you can raise the wages of the social workers who actually do the outreach to, to reach out to homeless individuals. These are, of course, very difficult jobs. Of course, there's a, a very high rate of burnout 
how much does an outreach worker typically make and and where do you feel like that how much needs to change we've never had a day off you know all through the pandemic all of our staff were there 24 7 365 and you know our frontline folks you know they 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 all got sick they all got vaccinated but they still got sick they took the virus home their families got sick in some cases their grandparents got sick in some cases they passed away uh but they showed up for work every day and I think our, we're going between 19 and 23 bucks an hour uh, for our frontline staff, our case managers, our security, our outreach folks. And, uh, you know, that's and unfortunately, you know, 20 some bucks an hour, 25 bucks an hour, 30 bucks an hour isn't a living wage in San Diego anymore. And yet our folks just keep showing up. We've been very blessed on the alpha side of the house. Uh, certainly we saw that at the convention center. We had 700 people, residents on our side of the building. You know, they, they were there every day. And I just can't say enough for our folks that could have quit. They could have stayed home and sequestered and like everybody else, but they just kind of kept coming to work and they deserve to be compensated for that. Nobody complains. They just do their job day in and day out. And so the other agencies are feeling the same way. And we, we can't find, we have probably 20 or 30 openings at Alpha. I know other agencies are the same way. We can't, feed, you know, we try and get college kids to come down and they come down in about five minutes and turn and burn. They scream like they don't want to be there and they go out the door. I mean, it's a tough field. I mean, we're dealing with, with human beings and conflicted human beings and folks in need. And, and our staff are folks in need, too. And uh, they face the same housing challenges as everyone does. I'd like to move on to some audience questions soon. But Lisa, since he mentioned that, can you, can you tell us more about this compensation study? We've actually been sharing with policymakers um, for for quite some time now that we need to con we can't keep funding programs at the same level they were funded at six years ago, ten years ago. A lot of the funding that has come through in the past has been uh, fixed funding. So you know the needs increase and the cost of living increases, but the funding doesn't. So this is a conversation we've been having with policymakers over the past several years. Last um, late last year into this spring, we developed a new scope of work with a consultant to work with us to really look at benchmarking compensation, but not just benchmarking ourselves against ourselves, not social service against social service sector. Looking at this social service sector against other social service sectors across the country in high cost high need areas. Also looking at emergency responders. How are emergency responders and public safety staff being compensated compared to the work that some of the shelter and outreach teams are doing every day, which are also responding to people's crisis, trying to be an intervention and a support, trying to bring compassion to the work. How are we benchmarking against those types of positions? Because that's who we're competing with. Right. So we really need to look at when frontline staff are making 20 to 22 dollars an hour and you can make that at Starbucks. Are we really going to get the people that we need that are compassionate, that provide the expectations that Jesse would have of a case manager or a service provider or an outreach worker to be present, be compassionate, not be stressed and be something that is a help rather than another barrier that you feel like you can't connect with? We need to we need to compensate people appropriately. So we're working through this consultant right now, having conversations. The city's very interested in this work and is very keen to look at what these needs are. And and we're we're very supportive of these conversations. Jesse, can you share with us uh, some of your interactions or experiences with outreach workers or social workers? It sounds like once you got to San Diego, having one consistent person who you were able to contact and 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 you know interface with. 
was really helpful. But in your past experience, did you, you know, was it was it you were always being passed from one caseworker to another? What was that like? Uh, actually, I would flip those. So uh, San Francisco, I can't, I couldn't even find help out there. And out here, um, I haven't had one consistent person to have contact with. Even on the veteran's arm, the turnover is still ridiculous. In the four months I've been here, there's already been five caseworkers for the veteran's case that I had. So I still see that. And then on the topic of compensation, I'm in three advocacy groups run and they drafted a bill that went all the way to the house, but there's no compensation for that and uplift that's on a volunteer basis, but I'll be working with the client in the coming weeks. So I'm thankful again for lived experience advisors because they do pay me for my time and they treat this as it's a career. It's part of the reason why I'm even able to be here today to share my experience because of the compensation there, but it's not, it's not really as ubiquitous as you would think it would be because these people are where the rubber meets the road and like Bob said, it's it's rough out there. And I imagine it, it's really important to have a con- one person, you know, who can actually gain someone's trust to, rather than, you know, it, it, if, if somebody has been burned over and over again by a social worker who just didn't come through or maybe it wasn't their fault, but, you know, they were put on a wait list. And, you know, it, it, I, I can imagine, tell me if I'm right, that, um, you know, being able to build trust and a rapport between a service provider, outreach worker, and a person who's experiencing homelessness is really important. That's key. That's yeah, key. It's taking time with folks. And that's the beauty of our facilities is because it takes time. People have to, they have been burned so many times by other programs or other uh, workers and stuff. They're just another grain of sand on the beach. And the, the beauty at our facilities, you know, 90% of my folks have lived experiences. All of our, all of our 300 plus employees, 90% of those folks all have lived experiences. And, and so they relate to our folks, but it takes, time especially when the folks that we deal with have never have have all of their trust uh, has been burned on them a million times and for them to see consistency is the key consistency if you say you're going to do something do it and build those relationships and that's that's the key to having to, to and that's key you know with your families and in life in general you know how many people can you say that you trust and so uh that that was why i was so proud of our folks to continue sh- uh, showing up because they weren't going to leave their people there Everybody has a, a team that they work with of residents, and they weren't going to leave them there by themselves. Still ahead, the conclusion of the KPBS Community Forum on Unsheltered Solving Homelessness in San Diego. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh.
In the final part of the KPBS Community Forum, Unsheltered, Solving Homelessness in San Diego, host Andrew Bowen asks Alpha Project CEO Bob McElroy what kind of resources are available to members of the homeless population who are mentally ill or afflicted by serious drug abuse. All you have to do is go to Hillcrest. Uh, you know, I mean, the, the emergency room, that 15% of the population or more that I talked about, who are simply homeless because they're trapped in their mental illness. Um, their primary care physician is the emergency room and they go in there and get stabilized and then they're back on the street and they just, it's day in and day out. I've had, here's something that, that broke my heart years ago. I had, in fact, actually a, cu- a couple ladies tell me that they called when they all got their cell phones, they, they would call the paramedics and I'd say, why, why, why'd you call the paramedics? You're fine. Because they acknowledge I'm a human being and they're nice to me. And the people in the emergency room are nice to me. And, you know, remember when we're on the streets, most of the time we're by ourselves and we're alone. That's why we had so many people turn down their housing vouchers because they don't want to be alone again. They want fellowship. But when you see the streets, you walk the streets of Hillcrest specifically. I mean, it's, it's, it's tragic. We have people that are walking biohazards. We had a, a young man the other day come up to our office seeking some help obviously in in uh, in stress and we gave him some water and we tried to have we wanted him to wait for our outreach team uh, to come and he walked down the, the 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 landing to the stairs and defecated all over himself and then he continued to, to walk down the, the sidewalk and didn't want to talk to anybody but anymore but he was like that all day now he he didn't sign up for that he's a human being and yet we don't have facilities for these folks and uh, that's that's the tragedy that's the heartbreak that we see every day i just had a guy die yesterday uh, on the streets out in front of uh, alpha square so this is the stuff that we see every day this is not unique to us but it's tragic and somebody needs somebody needs to listen uh to the frontline folks and say enough enough already Governor Newsom, I think you alluded to this earlier on this program, Governor Gavin Newsom has a proposal to create care courts, which would uh, be set up in each county, uh, and they would have the power to compel a person into mental health treatment, and the county government would be required to pay for that treatment. Um, Bob, you want to share as an advocate in this space what your thoughts are on that proposal? Well, my experience over there, you know, us crazy people, we don't think we're crazy, right? It's getting folks to recognize the fact that they may have some challenges uh, and and to have, once again, trust in somebody to get on the, the medications that they need and have a safe place to stay, to stay that is that has wraparound services there, um, assisted living facilities where not boarding cares, but assisted living facilities where we've got clinicians there that deal specifically with mental health issues, get people trusting you enough to get on the medications that they need so they can have some peace and dignity and quality of life. They get none of that by just allowing them to, to die on the streets. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm encouraged. I don't know if I'm enthusiastic because I haven't seen it yet. You know, people say a lot of things and do very little. I hope they do this. Here's another question from a listener. Why not convert a commercial office property into a, a living space? We should have plenty of empty commercial properties. Um, maybe Lisa, take this one on. Uh, adaptive reuse of commercial buildings, I think, is probably easier said than done in many cases. Uh, have you, or has the Housing Commission, financed any of those types of projects? And do we know? Have we learned any lessons? 
We haven't financed any that type of project specifically. Uh, certainly that's a conversation that's happening locally and nationally because of the changes in sort of work, you know, remote working. There are challenges. Building infrastructures that are built for office use are not built for ongoing day-to-day -day use. So some of the infrastructures around plumbing, sewer, and, and electrical are things to consider. Um, and as so that that does create a challenge. Unfortunately, in our um, in our particular community, even acquisition and rehab is going upwards of two hundred eighty thousand to four hundred thousand dollars. You know, to, sorry, to three hundred thousand dollars a unit. And that's and briefly. So acquisition and rehab is you buy a market rate property, you yeah. rehabilitate it or renovate it, and then right. you keep the rents low. Yes, and a market rate property that is likely already in somewhat type. In, in sort of a model that would fit for that, like um, long-term residence ins, things of that nature. Um, commercial property is a real change. So if you're looking for non-congregate living, SRO type, commercial could definitely be a challenge, but we have to look at everything. We have to be willing to look at every option. Another audience question here, what are some examples of solutions for solving homelessness that are working in San Diego or in other parts of the state or in other states best practices, models of success. Tamara, could you take this one? There are a lot of things that are working, right? One of the things when I referenced our bigger numbers of individuals experiencing homelessness, you're not seeing 30,000 people on the street. So our shelters, our outreach teams, our housing programs, all are working. We just need a lot more of it. And we need uh, communities to embrace that we're, we're really housing individuals with complex needs. Some of them is just financial. Some of it's, you know, additional supports that are needed. I think the things that we know work is housing ends someone's homeless experience. And so high cost, high needs, but that's really where we lean in. And we're trying to do a, a better job of getting people quicker through our system to have those housing resources. And, you know, Lisa kind of touched on it. We need a myriad of housing options that meet their needs, everything from board and care to permanent supported housing. And that's really the work that we're doing. We're putting resources into all of those areas. Uh, we can't wait, as Bob said, to bill our way out of it. So we're looking for not just property that we can do, but, you know, small, um, apartments, rehabbing some of those things as well. So I think it's a full court press on the funding that's available that that is coming to our community to try and get as many housing units as we possibly can to house people in all the different ways that they need. You know, some of them need to be housed with the person that they are comfortable with. They need a roommate. They need community. They need to be embraced by us in our community as we rehouse them and they bring so much to us and restoring the dignity and respect of San Diegans is a worthy cause. We're just about out of time, but I wanna ask each of you uh, the same question. I imagine a lot of people are listening and watching and are wondering what they can do to help this situation. What would you say to those folks who want to be a part of the solution to homelessness, but just don't know what to do? Bob, why don't we start with you? I, you know, I say pray for us, number one, but, uh, you know, be, be more involved in any way you possibly can. I mean, volunteerism is great. We're seeing that come back to life now. We haven't been able to do that for two years. But, you know, you, you hear stereotypes uh, about homeless folks. Come down to our facilities and meet our folks one-on-one. -on -one. Hopefully, we'll be able to get back to congregate uh, meals at some point and have folks come down and serve meals. That's therapeutic for our residents to see somebody other than me and our, our folks down there to see the community does care. That's been a big, that's been a big deal, but not having our volunteers uh, show up and kids come down with socks and sock drives and stuff because 
it's really an affirmation that, you know, not everybody's against homeless people, that people come down here and spend their time with you and care. So hopefully here in the near future, we'll be able to re-engage with our, the folks in the community, come down and see what we do and, and be involved. Lisa, things folks can do to, to help out if they don't know how? Uh, humanize homelessness. All homelessness means is you've lost housing. We need to talk about our challenges as a society. Everybody knows someone or has had someone they know and love who has either experienced homelessness or experienced drug addiction, substance use disorders, behavioral health challenges. We need to start humanizing our challenges and we need to humanize this work. And part of humanizing it is saying yes in my neighborhood, right? All that means when you put affordable housing in, in a neighborhood is that it's housing people can afford, right? And we need a variety of housing resources. We need a variety of housing levels, whether it's middle income housing, affordable housing, permanent supportive housing, support housing in your neighborhood. Then you won't have those homelessness challenges. Tamara? I'm just going to say ditto to Bob and Lisa. I think, you know, volunteer, get to know the individuals that, that you have a great concern about. They will humanize it. Say yes to not only housing in your community, but in all communities, right? It, it is important to have housing, workforce housing, housing that someone on a fixed income, we have people with disabilities that have an income and can't afford it. So I would also say to landlords, you know, it, it is actually a, a great option to take someone who has a housing resource with the supports that they need. I think it's yes, 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 say yes to solving homelessness by opening up uh, employment, housing, volunteer, funness, and be a part of the conversation. You know, we hear a lot from the no's. Those are the loudest voices in the room. I think a lot of people are more willing and more compassionate in San Diego than show up in our community meetings. So you need to show up and voice, you know, that you're one that, that cares about your neighbors and cares about others. And if we're really honest, we're talking about people in our own families, in our own circles uh, that have these same challenges. And I think we need to we need to just break down those barriers and acknowledge that we're, you know, it's tough times and everyone's struggling. Jesse, I want to give you the last word here. Uh, what would you say to folks who, who want to help out but don't know how? Of course, volunteering, definitely. But also just small acts of kindness and compassion. If you encounter somebody that's going through a traumatic time, wherever they're at, just small acts that will help you remember they're still human and help them remember that they still matter. It's just those little acts of kindness that make all the difference, especially in my own experience. And also in the age of the internet, you can also reach out and support bills that will help the processes. Like for instance, what RUN does. So you can even go online, reach out to the people that you vote for. That's easier now than it's ever been. So at all different levels, you can do whatever works for that individual person. KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org.